From the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, this is Great Talks at the APS, a podcast where we ask scholars about some of the most thought-provoking talks given at the society. Since 1743, the APS has hosted the greatest minds from around the world to talk about cutting-edge research, new discoveries, and timeless issues. Listen in every month for a new episode. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Spiro. Welcome to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. I'm Patrick Spiro, librarian of the Society. Today, I'm joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Linda Greenhouse. Linda spent 40 years at the New York Times, 30 of which was spent covering the Supreme Court. She received the Pulitzer Prize in 1998 for her consistently illuminating coverage of the United States Supreme Court. In 2001, she was elected a member of the American Philosophical Society and last year became the institution's first woman president in its 275 years of operation. Today, Linda has joined us to talk about a lecture she delivered at an APS meeting in 2013 called Truth in Journalism and her subsequent book, Just a Journalist, on the press, life, and the spaces between. Thank you, Linda, for joining us. It's a pleasure, Patrick. My first question, I wanted to go back five years to 2013 when you delivered a talk at the APS. And for those of you that listen to this talk, you begin uh, with uh, kind of a, a joke. So I don't have a PowerPoint, but I have a good excuse. I didn't know I was going to be talking. Uh, can you tell us a little bit of the backstory on, on what led to you speaking? Oh, yes. Well, somebody was scheduled. And... I got an email from that person uh, just before dinner the night before. And, and Annie Westcott, our director of meetings, was at the same restaurant. And I went over to Annie and I said, Annie, we have a problem. We have a space that's just opened up in tomorrow's program. And she said, oh, what can we do? And I said, well, you know, I recently gave a talk that I happen to still have on my laptop, which I happen to have back in the hotel room, and I can give that talk, and that's what I did. Do we have good journalism? Do we have journalism that actually does check facts and assumptions often enough? So I'm calling my talk Truth in Journalism. So I, I have to say, in all honesty, it was not written for the APS, but um, it was on a topic I've thought a great deal about and have uh, given and written in many iterations, finally leading to a book, but I'm sure that's not the end of the story because the question of uh, uh, where journalism goes from here is, uh, is a story without an end, at least not yet. Yeah, and the topic was truth and journalism, um, and that is just as relevant today as it was in 2013 and probably as relevant you know, 20 years even before then. And I was wondering if you could just quickly summarize for us some of the things that you, you said in that talk. Okay, what I meant by truth and journalism, and of course we all aspire to have truth in our journalism, uh, it, it, it was really an examination of the, the norms and habits of mainstream journalism that, in my opinion, disable reporters, journalists, from actually sharing what they perceive to be the truth, what they actually know, uh, with their readers and viewers. Things like uh, two sides to every story, which leads to what's kind of known in the trade as the false equivalence, because not every story actually has two sides. If stories are very complicated and nuanced, I mean, if an issue was very complicated and nuanced, story should have many sides. If it's 
rather black and white, such as uh, torture is really a bad thing. There's only one side. But the norm that says you've got to, got to boil everything down to two sides leaves your readers or your viewers uh, in a state of confusion, if not actual ignorance. So, you know, that was, that was uh, one of the things. And, you know, we could, we could go on with that. But uh, certainly in 2013, neither I nor anybody listening to me would have anticipated the world we're living in in 2018 when uh, not every major media organization seems to have all that much adherence to the truth and when not everybody in high offices in our government seems to have much adherence to the truth. Let's tell some truths about lying. Because the way Donald Trump lies has people rethinking some of the basic premises of journalism. The collision uh, between those two uh, situations, um, what's going on in journalism and what's going on in, let's not be coy about it, in the White House, um, presents mainstream journalism with a very uh, fascinating and consequential uh, set of issues. I was wondering if you could say, before we talk about you know, the, the state of the world today and the challenges it faces to journalists, big picture question, what, what is journalism at its best? What's its potential? So I think journalism at its best, or if we want to say what's, what's the mission of journalism, I think it's to inform citizens and thereby to empower them to uh, exercise self-government in a democracy. And if you have a citizenry that is confused and ignorant, uh, you're not going to have a very good government. So it sounds kind of reductive, kind of simplistic, but I think that really is uh, the goal, to tell people to the best of the ability of people on the staff of a media organization what they know to be happening. And, and how has journalism's ability to deliver on this great potential changed over the course of your career? Was it more effective when you began than when you left? Is it improving? Uh, how would you assess it? Well, I think it was in a kind of a status quo mode for a very long time. And what's so fascinating and what, of course, postdates the 2013 APS talk is the arrival on the scene of Donald Trump, first as a candidate among others, then as a major party nominee for president who simply didn't tell the truth. We won in a landslide. That was a landslide. I never met Putin. I don't know who Putin is. It looked like a million, million and a half people. What you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. And what is mainstream journalism supposed to do about that? Because it really just cuts against the DNA to uh, call out a major public official for being a liar. And one thing I, I chronicle in the book is the uh, painful, painstaking, uh, kind of torturous path that the New York Times, which I use as a kind of a bellwether of mainstream journalism, it's not a book about the New York Times per se, but most of my examples come from the Times, the path that it followed in September of 2016, uh, not that long before the election, actually in front page lead story of the paper called nominee Donald Trump a liar and that was um, that was crossing a certain Rubicon uh, and that marked I think a change I don't think I don't believe that during Watergate uh, any 
mainstream paper actually said in so many words, Richard Nixon is lying. But they did say uh, Donald Trump is lying. In fact, the Washington Post keeps a running account and hundreds and hundreds of specific untruths that the president has uttered and every so often prints the whole list. This is really quite extraordinary. Well, one of the organizations mentioned in your book is factcheck.org. And when you mentioned it, it was to praise it for the work that it was doing, that this, you felt, was what journalists should be doing. Um, but oftentimes, they didn't or they couldn't. They felt that, like they had professional barriers or ethics that prevented them from doing what you thought was a fundamental job of, of journalism. Is that an accurate assessment? And if so, how did that develop? Well, I think that develops. A fact check was set up by the Annenberg people here in Philadelphia. And I think it was a, I mean, I don't actually know this, but I assume it was a response to uh, Annenberg's understanding of these habits and norms that just make it so difficult for journalists to say, by the way, dear reader, uh, what you just heard is not true. And so it's a neutral, nonpartisan, respected entity that can do the job that actually, in my opinion, journalism ought to be doing. But it's great if journalism can't do it, that fact check is doing it. Your your book really is a meditation on journalism, on its limitations, some of which I think um, you seem to say are are self-imposed by journalists or by the profession themselves, and how that may limit its potential to to do good, to serve that mission that you were talking about. Um, And so to begin, I I wondered if you could just talk about your choice of title, Just a Journalist. Uh, What does that mean? I think irony is an underappreciated um, art in uh, in American life. So you know, to that to that extent, it's it's ironic. But what I play off against one another in the book are, are are two roles: the journalist and the citizen. And it's really an extended essay that investigates the question of can a journalist be a citizen too? Uh, is it properly considered unethical, and it's considered unethical in many quarters, for journalists to take part in, to be participants in, uh, the great issues of the day. So one incident that's in my own life that's entered into the journalism textbooks as a kind of example of uh, whatever you do, don't do this, was Uh, There was a a march in Washington in 1989 uh, when I was covering the Supreme Court uh, for abortion rights. We are saying to the Supreme Court of America, we will never go back again. And I marched with a few of my college uh, friends and roommates, um, took part in this march, which, uh, as did half a million other people, on the National Mall and told everybody in my office that I was doing this and nobody actually raised a hair uh, until it became an issue across town at the Washington Post where uh, the Post executive editor at that time, a very fine journalist named Leonard Downey, whose own sense of personal journalistic ethics uh, uh, says that a, a journalist should not vote, should not register and vote. Uh, found when he found out that some of his staff members had uh, also attended this march, um, he got quite upset and said that was very bad. And nobody had told me at the Times that it was even a little bit bad, actually. But um, the Times wasn't going to be sort of out-ethicked by um, 
by the Washington Post, and so kind of uh, retrospectively it became a bad thing. Greenhouse wrote two dozen stories involving abortion that year, one published the same day as a Times article about her participation in the march. Sandy Rowe is editor of the Portland Oregonian and a past chairwoman of the executive committee of the Pulitzer Prize Board. Rowe praises Greenhouse's work, but questions her judgment. If she or any other reporter stakes out a strong position on an issue that is still evolving both in society and that is before the courts, yes, I think that is problematic. Greenhouse told NPR, quote, I said what I said in a public place, let the chips fall where they may. Uh, You know, I discussed that as an example of what is the line, if there is any, and if there is one, where should it be drawn? between uh, a person living a life as a journalist and a person living a life as a citizen, and can they coexist? And so the just a journalist uh, versus, you know, journalist plus citizen, journalist plus, I don't know, president of the American Philosophical Society, any other role in life that one might assume uh, is part of uh part of what this book is about. Yeah, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about Leonard Downey as an, as an example of a, uh, one model or one approach to this, this dilemma. Um, is there a risk in taking the tack that uh, you know, Leonard Downey advocated, which is to be a completely neutral, objective, uh, which is a word often passed around in journalism, um, uh, individual? How does that potentially undermine actually that goal that you talk about, about informing a democracy? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a puzzle because, uh, I, I mean, actually I never met Leonard Downey, so this, none of this is, is, you know, personal. But he does stand for um, a way of being that has, you know, deep roots, uh, really just don't take part of, in anything, uh, not your local school board, not, you know, a- anything. Your local, I don't know, maybe your local homeowners association, I don't know. And he also, I quote him as saying uh, when he retired that um, he actually had kind of trained himself so that he simply did not have opinions on uh, the issues of the day that the Washington Post under his direction was covering. And I just find that remarkable. It's not that I doubt his uh, sincerity. I, you know, I'm perfectly willing to believe that he actually did not form opinions, but Uh, Is that the price that one pays for being a journalist, as opposed to, it seems to me, part of the craft of journalism is you can have very strong views about a whole lot of things, uh, but you train yourself as as a matter of craft to be, to, to, you know, check your opinions um, at the door when you sit down to write the story. So uh, when I was covering at the court uh, things that I cared a lot about. I certainly didn't see my role as telling my readers what to think. It was to give them all the relevant information and empower them to think for themselves. And I think that's indeed the goal and what the individual journalist thinks about the issues of the day uh, should be totally irrelevant, which is different from saying they shouldn't have opinions. I don't care who has opinions. I care what the work product is. And if the work product is, you know, laden with hidden opinions and innuendo and this and that, then it's a bad piece of work. And maybe that person should go into a different line of work. But what's in their innermost thoughts is, uh, is really none of my concern. So your participation in the, in the march, which uh, the controversy developed after the fact and came as a surprise to you, and now it's even taught in 
journalism classes. Yes, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> let me interrupt, yeah. Patrick. So it, it's it's taught incorrectly. Actually, it's taught, and I know this only because I I regularly not as much now as I used to, but get um, inquiries from journalism students who want to talk to me about it. And the received learning is that I was somehow outed, that I had done something in secret and I was outed. It's the total opposite is true. I invited everybody to come with me. And uh, as I say, nobody in my office, including my bosses, um, ra raised a hair about it. So I just wanted to interrupt yeah, with well, that, with so, that point. Um, I was wondering if you could actually talk about what you meant by this sentence. Okay. Um, the students, those that now learn about this in class, uh, had trouble grasping the fact that, as they certainly had not learned in journalism classes, it had not be always been the case that sanctimony was seen as the best defense against criticism. Okay. So what I mean by that, uh, I think the, uh, the worst slur that anybody can hurl at a mainstream journalism organization or a mainstream journalist is you're biased, right? You're biased. That's a terrible thing to say. That's like saying, you know, you're a racist or you're, you know, it's, it's like one of the worst things you can say to somebody in that line of work. So how do you protect against that? My view is a kind of a spasm of sanctimony has seized the mainstream media in, I would say recent years, 1989 is not all that recent, but certainly in my lifetime, in my career as a journalist, uh, so that uh, everybody is just walking on eggs and everybody is just afraid of anything that might give ammunition, especially organizations like the New York Times that are assumed to be uh, uh, permeated by woolly-headed liberals, uh, you know, that might give ammunition uh, to folks on the right to say, see, we told you, we always knew. Uh, so that's actually what I, that, that, that's the atmosphere that I was reflecting when I used the word sanctimony, and I, I used it very advisedly. And that is something that developed over the course of your career is it because of the rise of you know media critic organizations that are prominent often on the right uh to fact check the the what is perceived as a liberal mainstream media i mean is that is that the cause of it or is there something else well i think that's a big that's a big cause of it actually um it, it, it's a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, maybe it was also too early in my career, but as a baby reporter, I wasn't writing about things that pushed anybody's buttons. And so uh, to that extent, I, I was unaware of it. But, uh, you know, my sense is just as the way to deal with a schoolyard bully is not to um, allow yourself to keep being bullied, but to stand up and, and fight for yourself. Um, I, I quite strongly believe that the best defense against... Um, unfounded accusations of bias is to say, uh, show me, prove it. Uh, show me in, in the work that we publish uh, where the bias lies. Stop just, uh, you know, calling names, but, uh, but show me. And I actually think that doesn't happen, or if it happens, it doesn't happen enough. Yeah, I, I, there's a, cu a couple of more uh, stories uh, from your book that I want to uh, ask about that are, that are related to this. One is um, at the end of the book, you talk about after retiring, for the first time, you're able to work uh, at a poll. Um, and as you leave the polls, you're driving home, you say, you no longer needed to justify, even to myself, my participation in the mechanics of citizenship. Um, and in another story, um, uh, you decide to make donations to Planned Parenthood. 
And instead of just having it withdrawn from your check, you make a point of personally writing and signing the check every year. Every uh, month. As, every month um, right. as, as your act of citizenship. So can you talk a little bit more about how you yourself um, struggled with your desire to be an active and engaged citizen in this democracy, which every citizen should be able to enjoy, and the constraints that you felt were placed on you by you know, journalism itself, rightly or wrongly? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it probably wasn't as much of a struggle as some... Um, some people would like to think it was because I actually thought when I decided to contribute to Planned Parenthood, which again, I did totally openly and in fact posted a notice on the bulletin board in the New York Times Washington Bureau saying, here's what I'm doing. And the reason I did it is that uh, the United Way organization in Washington had cut Planned Parenthood out. And uh, Times employees were urged every year by the publisher who himself was a big supporter of Planned Parenthood uh, to give money to United Way. In fact, the CEOs of uh, corporations in New York would get uh, would give each other prizes based on the participation level of their employees. So it was important to the New York Times publisher that people give money to United Way. And I always did when I worked in New York for the Times. And when I moved to Washington, I got the solicitation and I looked at the list of beneficiaries of, uh, of United Way, and I didn't see, I looked under the letter P, I didn't see Planned Parenthood. I called United Way, and I said, ask why not? And I was passed around from one person to another and finally got somebody who said, well, you know, Planned Parenthood is, is controversial. Now, I should say, this was back in the 1970s. This was before the current controversies about Planned Parenthood. And I said, well, excuse me, but I don't think it's a very controversial proposition to do something about the appalling teen pregnancy rate in the District of Columbia. So I guess I'm just going to have to give my United Way money directly to Planned Parenthood. And that's what I posted on the bulletin board and urged other people who were so inclined or who were likewise offended by the United Way um, cutting Planned Parenthood out, uh, you know, to follow my example. And and so that's what it was. But, um, you know, so it was actually not, not a struggle for me. But I have to say, when the book of when this book in which I tell that story appeared in print uh, last fall, the fall of 2017, um, uh, to the extent that it got noticed or reviewed, a number of the reviewers said, oh my God, she's given a monthly check to Planned Parenthood for 30 years. How can this be? And, you know, I don't really care what they think, but I just was very amused at of all the things in the book, some of which, you know, one could take as provocative, uh, that's what that's what jumped out of people. So this is off topic in terms of journalism, but it's a more about um, your views on on abortion rights, um, which you know comes through in this book that that issue is very important to you. Um, making this monthly donation, um, I was wondering if you could first talk about how you first became aware of uh, the issue, which was through your work as a as a reporter, um, and then you know a question that very rarely I think gets asked today, which is. Um, we, we often talk within our own circles, and there's an assumption on why people believe what they believe. I was wondering if you'd be willing to talk about why you feel so strongly about this issue. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say my support of Planned Parenthood is not only because of abortion. I mean, they just do an awful lot of uh, important work in, in women's health, for you know, for the most part. Um, no, certainly growing up, as I did in the 1960s, uh, before Roe against Wade made abortion a constitutional right, of course, you know, you would hear these horror stories about, uh, you know, what happened to uh, young women who became pregnant and what they had to do about it and, you know, put their 
lives in jeopardy or scrape up the money to go, as one friend of mine did, to Japan, where abortion was legal, or to Puerto Rico or to Mexico or to England, and you know, uh, that kind of thing. So this is sort of in the back of my mind. Um, fortunately, it was not an issue that had ever uh, presented itself in, in my own life. But um, I was kind of randomly assigned as a young, very young reporter at the Times uh, to write about the filing of an early lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of New York's 19th century criminal abortion statute. Uh, this was in 1970. And the statute went back to 1828, am I remembering yeah, correctly? Yeah, it was one of the early ones, but... Uh, you know, by the end of the 19th, I mean, at, at the founding of the country, and that's your expertise, Patrick, you're an expert in the founding, uh, abortion was not illegal. And it was pretty common. It was pretty common. Um, it became illegal in every state uh, during the 19th century um, because of various morality campaigns and also the American Medical Association got involved because the... Um, Abortion practitioners typically were not doctors, they were women. Uh, you might say kind of analogous to midwives, uh, but they were competition for doctors. And also, of course, abortion in those days before antibiotics and kind of understanding of sterile uh, procedures, um, it was not particularly, it was, I'm sure, safer than childbirth as it is today. Today, abortion is. Uh, regarded as 14 times safer than childbirth, actually, but it, you know, had, had its dangers. Anyway, there are a lot of reasons why abortion became, became criminal. So I was assigned to write uh, about this lawsuit and um, just threw myself into it and, and learned on the fly, really on the fly, some constitutional law and what was going on uh, with these kind of issues. And so um, I guess I just became persuaded um, at a maybe young and impressionable age, that this was, uh, the women had a very valid claim and important uh, right in terms of um, autonomy and health um, to decide their life course and decide whether and when uh, to become mothers. And, and so um, that just seemed to me a, a position from, from logic. And, um, you know, the most persuasive um, you might say pro-choice slogan I ever heard was um, uh, a bumper sticker I saw once is opposed to abortion, don't have one. So, uh, you know, certainly on the, from the pro-choice side, nobody was forcing anybody to have an abortion. Um, but from the other side, uh, it's a question of, you know, forcing women to become mothers. And half of all pregnancies in this country still in 2018 are unintended. And about 40% of those end in abortion. So about a third of all American women will have an abortion uh, during their reproductive lifetime. And um, that's, been, that's been true for a very long time, although the rate's gone down um, as uh, there's better, more effective contraception. And the incidence of abortion has really migrated to the lower socioeconomic groups um, of women who don't have ready access to the most effective, long-lasting contraception. That's a whole thing about the, the contraceptive mandate on the Affordable Care Act that's been litigated and you know, undone by the current uh, administration. But it's always baffled me why people that have a moral opposition to abortion 
don't throw themselves into the effort to make contraception um, free and available to anybody who wants it. That's a mystery that I can't solve. You mentioned that you know you first came across this issue while covering local uh, uh, news in, in, in New York. And one of the really interesting things is you, you're not a trained lawyer, but you mentioned that just from covering local news and politics, you basically had an education in regulatory law, in criminal law, zoning laws. Um, can you talk a little bit about your exposure to law as a journalist and what that says about the role of law in American society? Well, first I'll say something about the, what it says about the role of journalism, which is, um, you know, just can be a great ongoing adult education. And that's really what kept me at it. Uh, all those years. So before I started writing about law, uh, I wrote about, of all things, uh, public finance, something I had absolutely no training in. But as a baby reporter, I was assigned to the New York capital, Albany, uh, when New York City was going bankrupt, the big New York City fiscal crisis of the mid-1970s. Governor Hugh Carey of New York told Congress today that default by New York City would be an economic pearl harbor for the rest of the nation. Everybody was climbing the same steep learning curve about public finance. When I say everybody, I mean the governor and his top advisors and the press corps. And we were all in it together. We were all struggling to understand the dimensions of this crisis and the possible solutions. And, you know, I didn't know a note from a bond, but by the end of it, I did. Uh, so that was, you know, kind of preliminary. And then as it happened, um, right after that episode, and I was in Albany for four years, um, the Times got the notion uh, of sending me to Washington to cover the Supreme Court, uh, for which I was not particularly qualified. Uh, so um, a fellowship had become available at Yale Law School for journalists supported by the Ford Foundation uh, with the goal of um, alleviating the um, knowledge gap about law in the newsrooms of America. Um, and basically the fellowship consisted of going to first-year law school and getting a master's degree at the end, a, term, you're a, a, a terminal first-year law student. So I did that. And so um, it's not quite accurate that I didn't know any law. So I got, you know, the basic uh, first-year education. And then um, going down to cover the court, um, just learned something new every day. The, the second major theme of your book, uh, there are three themes, the boundaries that uh, journalists have to confront are the habits that they have. Um, and one of the things I think you, you critique are, are these habits that have developed in journalism um, as a way to kind of protect these boundaries that journalists uh, feel themselves under pressure to, to preserve. So I was wondering for our listeners, you could just talk about some of these uh, ideas that you talked about, um, for instance, distancing, which is something that readers may not be aware is happening, but happens all the time in news articles. So these distancing mechanism where uh, instead of the journalist actually writing what she knows to be the fact, puts it in the mouth of somebody else. So Professor Patrick Spiro said blah, blah, blah. Now, that may or may not have fallen within Professor Patrick Spiro's expertise, but the word professor in his title signals to readers, oh, okay, so here's something authoritative. And uh, that's a trap for the unwary because what I one thing I do in the book and what I've done over the years just for my own kind of bemusement is chronicle the way certain repeat players are quoted time and time again uh, on things that 
I have every reason to think they don't know much about, but they serve a certain purpose, or they may know a great deal about. For instance, I talk about one outfit called the Criminal Justice Legal Foundation, which sounds like a very weighty outfit. It's a few people in Sacramento, California, who have as their mission statement, basically, I I don't want to put words in their mouth, but it basically comes down to being the other side of the story. So whenever there's a story about some development in criminal justice, uh, some conviction, high-profile conviction being overturned or uh, somebody found to be innocent or whatever, whatever, uh, they can get, they get called and they're the other side of the story, you know, warning the dangers that lie ahead if this is a trend or, or, or whatever. So that's um, the, the kind of search for the, the, the phony expertise or even the real expertise, but the very interested expertise, the opposite of disinterested, um, is uh, a habit that I, I try to call out um, in, in the book. Yeah. And what would be your solution? Well, my solution would be um, uh, not to use so many quotes, for one thing. I mean, by the end of my career, I was almost never quoted anybody. And I just said things in my own voice. Again, not my opinion, but, uh, you know, I didn't need to quote an expert to say the sun rose in the east this morning. I could just say that, right? So that would be one answer. Just stop using these quotes. Another would be go to an authentic expert. Not just somebody with a professor in front of his or her title, but uh, have maybe have a bigger electronic Rolodex or whatever, and 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 quote people who actually are the authentic experts in that field. Um, and and third, uh, share with your readers if if the authority that you're quoting uh, has a personal interest in the matter, and and don't present them as simply a, a disinterested other voice from left field or right field, but, uh, you know, be, be candid with the readers. Uh, so I think those, those would be my solutions. Yeah. And do you think this is potentially the, the product of the ethos of Leonard Downey in which the idea of extreme disinterestedness leads to distancing, that you can't say a simple fact because that may, in fact, um, you know, break this through this, this, this boundary that, that is constructed? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it, it certainly predates uh, Leonard Downey, and I don't think it's... I mean, I think he's an extreme, uh, you know, variant on, on, that, on that spectrum. But I think um, it's a sense somehow that editors are signaling that, you know, you don't have to take our word for it. Here's an expert that we're serving up. I, mean, I remember when I, when I first came to the Washington Bureau, having been uh, the bureau chief up in Albany in the state legislature for a couple of years and, you know, kind of thinking I knew a little bit what I was talking about, I wrote an analysis of something, I forget what the subject was, uh, at the court. And one of the editors said to me, um, you know, this is pretty good. Uh, if you can quote some law professors in this piece, I can get it on page one for you. And I remember thinking, huh? And I said to him, I shocked him by saying, I actually don't care if it's on page one or not. It is what it is. I'm giving you my best analysis. So we had a non-meeting of the minds about that. But, uh, you know, over time, um, you know, I kind of claimed or earned the right to just tell it like I saw it. Uh, but not everybody gets that, gets that privilege. So that's, you know, that, that's part of the source of this, uh, you know, quoting all the, all the outside experts. And what about the concept of objectivity, which you note is no longer a part of elements of journalism? Yeah. So what does it mean to be objective? 
I mean, what what's even the definition of objective? It's it's a kind of a a buzzword that um, suggests something quite un, un, unobtainable, you might say. I mean, we all are looking at the world from a certain place where we're standing. So, you know, wherein does objectivity lie? I, I really think what's important is the final work product. And does it hold up? Is it a clear statement of the facts as the journalist understands them to be? Uh, and you don't have to put a, a label on it like objectivity, which really um, invites a lot of confusion, I think. And the last thing I want to end on is, is some of the more kind of personal stories uh, that come through in the book, especially the, the changes um, that, that happened over the course of your career. Could you just talk about what the newsroom culture was like when you first entered uh, the New York Times in, I think, 1968? One would have noticed two things about the New York Times newsroom in 1968. One, it was very big. It was just a, a room, an open room <clears throat> that went from... Uh, West 44th Street, West 43rd Street, uh, between Broadway and 8th Avenue. Uh, it was basically a block long and just rows and rows of, of metal desks uh, with basically nothing on them. Uh, each desk had a, a kind of a, a well into which was attached a manual typewriter. And when you sat down at your desk, you'd open it up and there would be your typewriter. And at the end of the day, uh, you didn't leave any papers on your desk because the rule was they would be thrown out. So the notion was you didn't carry any baggage. You didn't have files. You didn't have anything, just what was in your head, and you showed up to work. Um, So that's one thing you'd notice. Of course, you'd also notice that um, there were very few women and very few people of color. A bunch of uh, middle-aged white guys, a sea of them, in fact, uh, so those are two things. And of course, both of those things changed, uh, maybe one quicker than another or whatever, or both rather unevenly. So uh, there are different, certainly different production methods than in the old days where there were hard and fast deadlines because it was a print-only paper, of course, and, uh, and you'd be writing your stories on what they called 10-part books, which were 10 pages uh, fastened together at the top with carbon paper. People don't even know what carbon paper is anymore uh, in between. And you yell in a kind of a sing-song voice, copy, copy. And the copy, quote, boys would come running up and take the copy and, you know, deliver it. So it was, you know, kind of a, it, it was a world that had changed very little in decades, decades. And then all of a sudden it changed quickly. And, uh, and the kind of things we're talking about certainly changed for the better. So um, just as it once would have been inconceivable that there would be a woman on the Supreme Court, you know, shortly before Justice O'Connor went on the court in 1981, there was a hit Broadway play called First Monday in October, which posited that there was a woman on the court, and that was a joke. The play was a comedy, right? Now we have three women on the court. Uh, It would have been inconceivable that there would have been women as bureau chiefs in Washington, as executive editors. So all that has changed. The story about the, the play in the Supreme Court reminded me of the story from your book about silencing at West Point in the movie that was ultimately produced about that. Um, I was covering the Westchester County area, suburbs north of New York, which did not actually include West Point, uh, U.S. Military Academy, which is further north 
west of New York, but whenever something happened there, they would they would often send me over there, and I um, was covering a, a cheating scandal uh, there, which was unfortunately a rather common occurrence, when somebody gave me a tip uh, that there was a cadet who was about to graduate, he was in his fourth year, who had been subjected for almost his entire stay at West Point uh, to a treatment known as the silence, where nobody would sit with him at dinner, nobody would talk to him. Uh, And this was because he was seen by the Corps of Cadets to have uh, cheated on a test, uh, had been brought up before an honor board, but the charges had been dismissed. And so, uh, but that didn't satisfy the cadets, and he was subjected to this ancient form of punishment, um, which had been inflicted over the years. For instance, one of the first black cadets who ever attended West Point, he was subjected to the silence simply because of his race. P.S. He later became a general. Um, and so, and so I heard about this, and I uh, reached out to this young man, and he told me his story, which was extremely gripping and sympathetic, and I visited his family, and I spent a lot of time doing this, and then I I covered his graduation, and kind of this story was sort of sprung on the world, and it was um, really a pretty big deal, the biggest deal of my then several years at the Times, and um, some movie producers, or made-for-TV movie, actually, not a Hollywood movie, uh, you know, got a hold of the story and sort of asked me if I would be a consultant or something, and you know, I was very young and naive, and I said no because I had a, a new assignment at that time, and I didn't think I could get the time off and so on. But I was, of course, interested in, in what was going to become of the story when it was turned into a movie. And I then heard that the in the movie, the reporter who broke the story um, was a man. And I actually never watched the movie, so I don't know whether it was good, bad, or indifferent, but I just found that very disheartening, actually. Yeah, and how do you think journalism has changed for women entering the field today that is different from what it was in, in 1968, 1970? Oh, I think journalism is, is totally open to young women. Uh, in fact, as far as I know, there may be more young women than men uh, in the field now. So no, I, I don't think, um, I mean, maybe I'm missing something or maybe I'm naive, but uh, my impression is that um, whatever other kinds of discrimination may still exist, sex discrimination is not actually one of them. Earlier, you mentioned the way technology has changed journalism and reporting. Um, the Internet's what looms really large today, but going even further back, how did television, um, the introduction of 24-hour news, uh, change journalism itself? Because, you know, one of the things you talk about is the need to get evening newspapers, uh, c- copy in time for the evening newspapers. Well, those go away. Why? Because there's news all the time now on the TV. You don't need an evening newspaper. How, how did TV even change your work? TV didn't actually change my work. Um, When I started covering the court, each of the three networks, and that itself is an old-fashioned concept, uh, had basically full-time correspondence at the court. And gradually that fell away. And um, I think the only one who's really left now is Pete Williams, who's a terrific reporter for NBC. But he has all of basically the system of justice part of his beat. It's not just the Supreme Court. So, you know, I think TV found that the court's not a very visual story. There's no cameras in the courtroom. Uh, It just didn't work very well for TV. So TV actually had not much impact on my life at all. Uh, The Internet, of course, is another matter. Uh, 
you know, the internet makes my current life, which involves following the court very closely, uh, possible from the remove of, of New Haven, which is where my day job is at Yale. Um, you know, I get downloaded opinion um, within a minute of it being issued uh, at, at the court in Washington and the internet, the court's website and other websites give me complete access to all the filings at the court and transcripts of the arguments and everything. So I have absolutely no beef with the internet. I couldn't, really, I couldn't function uh, without it, but it certainly has been, you know, ma- a major change in the working life of all of us. I mean, certainly yourself, and no matter what field somebody's in, it's different than it would have been 20 years ago. Yeah, you wrote that it actually made your reporting more useful. Yeah, I think what you're referring to was a certain, um, I don't know, identity crisis at a certain point when the Supreme Court had beefed up its what had been a very rudimentary internet you know, website so that they were providing the opinions and the briefs and a whole lot of other stuff. And at a certain point, I thought, okay, what's my role? You know, somebody that really cares about the court can simply download the opinion. They don't need me as an intermediary. And I, I, I wrestled with this, and then I realized that, well, I'd like to think they still did need me, because what they needed me for was was context. You know, where did this case come from? Why is it there? Uh, why had the court chosen this case among hundreds of others that it said no to? Uh, what about this decision? Why did it come out this way? Uh, where is it leading? All that kind of stuff that you're not going to get on an official website. And so once I kind of figured that out, I felt, okay, you know, the Internet's a tool. It's not an end in itself. And what I do uses it as a tool, but it goes, goes beyond it, I hope, in, you know, providing my, my readers something that they need. What about for the craft of journalism more generally? Um, the idea now that anybody can be a journalist or claim to be a journalist from their home because they have access to all this information, but also the ease of, of publishing. Do you think that has made being a journalist more difficult or how's it affected it? Well, from my own point of view, I think it's great. You know, I mean, I read a number of blogs and, you know, see stuff online uh, from people who, you know, have authentic expertise in something, not in everything. So it's not the kind of expertise that would maybe sustain, you know, a publishing career, but, but their blog is great for how narrow and deep it goes. Um, so, no, I'm not a person who kind of complains about, about that at all. I mean, it's a challenge for, um, say, government entities. So, you know, the congressional press galleries, for instance. So who's a journalist? Who's entitled to a credential? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. But that's above my pay grade, so <laughs> let the bureaucrats figure that out. So speaking of changes, you spent 30 years covering the Supreme Court, and I'm sure you saw massive changes from when you first began in 1978 to 2008. Can you talk a little bit about just your observation of the court over time? Well, when I started covering the court in 78, it was still the, you, you could sense the kind of almost as like a palimpsest of, of the Warren Court, which had ended in 1969 when President Nixon named uh, Chief Justice Warren Berger and Earl Warren retired. But still, um, Justice William Brennan was on the court when I got there. Justice Thurgood Marshall was on the court. So there was a a good fair fight for for the outcome of pretty much any issue. And that's not the case today. You know, we're we're speaking on on, uh, what was the last day 
of the court's 2017-2018 uh, term. Uh, this is June 27th, uh, 2018, and the court ended this morning. And, you know, a bunch of five to four decisions and very important things, and with some exceptions, some notable exceptions, but not many, the same five and the same four, the conservative five and the more liberal four uh, in, in, in dissent. And, uh, you know, that just wasn't the case when I started. Uh, there was a lot more that was uh, kind of up for grabs. And, and uh, you know, my students today, my, my law students, have grown up in a world where the court has been, you know, highly polarized and where uh, you can say, well, it's the Kennedy court. You know, it's, we, we might call it the Roberts court, Chief Justice John Roberts, but really it's the Kennedy court, whichever way Kennedy goes. And, uh, you know, my students think that's the way of the world, but actually that's very unusual. That's not been the case in, in our history. So I'd say that was, that was kind of the major change. For an, an, an aspiring journalist today, um, coming out of Harvard, like you, you had, um, what would be the advice that you give to an aspiring journalist other than that they, they should pick the right parents with a trust fund. Um, it's not an easy thing to plan to make a living at, actually. Um, you can have an awful lot of fun. But uh, Yale Law School, for one, is filled with eager students who would be journalists if they actually thought they could sustain a middle-class lifestyle on what they could earn. But setting that aside, because journalists never went into journalism to make money, um, I think people have to be comfortable on many platforms. I think people are hired now who can do video, who can do podcasting, uh, who can do all, photography, all kinds of things, because the platforms, um, I, I think a lot of, um, the, I was going to say publication, that's almost an old-fashioned word, are, are sort of platform neutral. It's just a matter of getting stuff out to readers, viewers, uh, users. Um, so, the notion of um, just sitting down at your typewriter and composing your stories is really old-fashioned, and uh, the, the skill sets are, are more demanding. But, you know, still the ultimate skill set, I think, is curiosity and um, being willing to follow your curiosity where it leads you and being able to tell a story. Well, thank you, Linda, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Great Talks at the American Philosophical Society. You can find more information about this episode, including archival collections related to its topics, on the Society's website at www.amphilsoc.org. Great Talks is produced by Abigail Shelton and Joseph DeLulo. Sound design and audio production is provided by Greenhouse Media. Our theme music is New England Triptych, composed by William Schumann and recorded by the President's own U.S. Marine Band. Your host is Dr. Patrick Spiro, and I'm David Spunt. <laughs>